Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator, bringing you this podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, in transition, or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to the life stories and the career stories of people who have successfully navigated their career. Well, when they look back, they say that. (laughs) But anyway, people who have been through what they've been through, so as they might get new ideas or maybe some inspiration on what they could do differently. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Raylene Decatur. She is a leadership transition and strategy consultant. And we met, gosh, seven or eight years ago, our paths crossed, and then now they're crossing again through a mutual friend. So I'm very excited to hear about what it means to be a leadership transition and strategy consultant. (laughs) Uh, But first, I always like to start with the icebreaker questions. Okay. Because we need to find out where you grew up, what your family dynamics were like, you know, how many kids, where were you in the birth order, and how you think that might have influenced you as a person. Right, right. And I think in my case, that was very influential. So I grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is America's most historic city, in case oh, one of your listeners doesn't the know that. That's the tagline. <laughs> um, I'm one of two. I'm the oldest, which is probably not a big surprise once you get to know me. And my parents were both only children. So that's really important because my parents were older by the standards of the day in the 50s when my sister and I came along, and they were so thrilled to have people to play with because they had grown up not having siblings that we had a lot of parental attention in a good way, not Mm -hmm. in a bad way. And my father had had to drop out of high school at 16 to support his mother. And his first job was carrying the bucket for a one-armed janitor. This is a true story. At Quantico, which is the Marine Corps base north of Fredericksburg. And he rose from that job to being a GS-15, which is a high-level government employee, supervising a group of engineers at the Navy Facilities Engineering Command. So I was in a family that really celebrated skills-based employment at least two generations before anybody used the term skills-based employment. (laughs) So um, very influential. It was also influential because I got my first job at 13 because I was five foot nine when I was 13. And if you're that tall, you can't be younger than 20, right? That's logical. Tall people are old people. And I started working in a little art gallery in Fredericksburg on the weekends. A friend's father was on the board and they needed somebody to work on Saturday afternoons and none of the volunteers would do that. So I did that for like 25 cents an hour or something. And that was my first sort of art gallery museum job when I was 13. Wow. So. So uh, growing up then, you were already working at that age. Did you not have sports or hobbies or anything like with the school? Back in the olden days when I grew up, we didn't play sports. I mean, you know, girls didn't play sports the way they do now. Or if you played sports, you did in the afternoon, but I never played sports. I was sort of the art kid. I hung out in the art room. And because my father had never grown up around any kind of sports, it just, nobody in my family was interested in sports. And Hmm. I can tell many funny stories about that. But, um, so I did that and I had a, I mean, I really had a job my whole life from 13 until I left the Museum of Nature and Science when I was in my 40s, so. So always working. Always working. But probably you didn't know any difference, so that was fine fine. for you, yeah. And from a family of people that were always working, so. That was the norm. <laughs> that, that was, was a, a, that was the social norm for the family. Well, that's what you should be doing. So, what was the age difference with you and your sister? Twenty-two months. Oh, so. which is too close together. Too close together. <laughs> and what does your sister do? She is retired, but she was a, a, a senior executive civilian with the Navy. So she went into the family business. Everyone in the family: my grandmother, my father, my sister, 
my husband, my brother-in-law, all were civil servants. Wow. Wow, that's a, that's a wonderful So we list. had a tradition well, of service. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Okay, so shifting gears just a slight bit here. Um, on a fun meter, scale of one to five, where yeah. would you put yourself? Oh, I'm a six. You're a six on a scale of one to five. That's awesome. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fun. You're fun. Okay, well, that's good because this will kind of play out a little bit as we right. go through right, right, right. the interview. And then on the risk-taking meter, same scale, one to five, where do you put yourself? It depends on what the risk opportunity is, but I'm probably a solid four. So still high up on still the scale. Still high up on the scale. Mm-hmm. And is it different for you personally or professionally? or? Um, probably not. I mean, it probably consistently I've been a risk taker. I didn't always know I was taking a risk, but other people have told me I'm a risk taker. Ah, you know, that is funny because I do think many times when we have a core competency, we don't see it, right? We don't, right. and it didn't feel risky to you. Right. But other people right. on the outside are like, whoa, I would have never right. taken that role or taken that project. That's right. Or, That's right. Or, and, and then there's always the inside-outside thing where people sitting out on the street may look at a situation and go, oh, that's easy street, right? Uh-huh. Where people that have, to paraphrase Hamilton, who are in the room where it's happening, right, know that that is a high-risk situation. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes people's perceptions are skewed because of their vantage point, and they don't know that. Absolutely. In fact, that's one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast is I feel like sometimes with, when you look at other people's careers and the roles that they have, it's easy to you know have that same conclusion, right? right? right. Oh, well, you must have had an easy path to get there, or maybe right. you're smarter or you have all these things right, that right. I don't have and yet once you start talking to people you find out they're human right they had right. a series of experiences that got them where they are right they have a dose of courage maybe that got them maybe further than other people right but anyway so I'm glad you mentioned that part yeah. so okay so let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a leadership transition and strategy consultant and then we'll get into how did I get here right right so what I do is work with organizations that are in the process of changing CEOs. That's what the leadership transition work is. And frequently I'm called by a major nonprofit, either here in Colorado or someplace else in the United States or Canada, and they either were anticipating that a CEO was going to retire, or they were not anticipating that a CEO was gonna take another job. Um, And so I go in and help the board and the staff sort out what it means to be going through this transition what they need in the next stage of the organization's life from a skills attribute and experience perspective in that CEO. And then I help them find that person and onboard that person. And I come back in and check in with how that's going and write a report on the leadership transition six months after the placement. So I'm there as a, it's a form of strategy consulting because what I'm really interested in is why is the organization where it is and where is it going to go next? And what are the vital ingredients that that new CEO will bring to make that transition actually occur? Absolutely, because there's um, there's seasonalities, there's cycles. There's cycle and life cycles you know, are huge. Yeah. So, so you can have the a brilliant hire when you're a startup, and if you hired that same person in a mature organization, it would be an utter and complete disaster. Um, so that's a piece of it. And then the other, I love doing strategy work, and so I like working with CEOs and boards around strategy and a large part of the leadership transition work I do is also strategy. Yeah. So because it's almost always a change in life cycle chapter or a pivot that causes a change in leadership. 
And you get to be part of that. They get to be part of that. And shaping the Over way and over again. Shaping the way forward. But right. then also, you're not just, here's your person and you're done. Six months later, you're right. checking That's back right. in or, or throughout that six months, I'm guessing, right. to make sure that that person and the organization is successful. And depending so. on the person place, sometimes I stay involved for four or five years. I mean, you know, once you've been my client, you're never out of the family. So, ah. Yeah. So you're as easy or as close as a phone call away. That's exactly right. <laughs> for support. Well, cool. So, Let's go back to junior high. Sure. Obviously, you were working back in junior high. <laughs> yeah. uh, did you know you wanted to be in leadership and strategy? Oh, I, I probably knew by the time I was eight years old that I would be a museum director. Oh, so there, there was already a path for There you. was already a path. Okay. I mean, I um, knew early, early, early what I wanted to do and what the job was and worked on gaining you know, the path to get to that job. How did you know? That's what I'm always so curious about. Did you have a great experience at a museum and you're like, oh, this is... Well, part, you know? that was probably part of it. My parents loved museums and even though neither of them had gone to college, we, and this sounds funny now when you say it because anyone who knows the East Coast, but we used to go up to Washington to the Smithsonian on a Friday or Saturday and just visit museums. And Fredericksburg is 52 miles south of Washington which back then was not the drive it is today with all the traffic and congestion and whatnot. So I grew up going to museums. I also grew up in Fredericksburg, America's most historic city. <laughs> and so I grew up going to historic properties and learning about history. I was always very interested in anthropology and archaeology. I was always very interested in art. And so I was sort of a geeky, you know, kind of kid who had those interests early on. and just always knew that's what I wanted to do. Wow. And then you're at 13 and 14 working in an art gallery. Right. So that's almost, right. you know, you know, the first step, right, to get right. you into the right. museum. So. And, and they, you know, I learned everything about running that place by working three hours a week. So I was helping artists hang exhibits. I was, when the flooding on the Rappahannock happened, I was there with the National Guard taking the art out. Uh, you know, I did little accounts receivable, little, you know, cleaning up how much I'd sold that day in the gift shop before I left at the end of the day. So pretty much everything I ever needed to know about museums, I learned in that job. Because wow. it's, it's scaled, but it was all the same yeah. thing. Well, and you had uh, a passion. You knew where you wanted to be or where right. you wanted to go. Right. And you had access to the owner and the gallery. Right. And so then you're, you're just curious and you're going right. to make it the, the most out of it. Wow. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So. so that was your first job. Then, you know, kind of take us through college. So, High school and college. So then I ended up being a tour guide at Historic Properties in Fredericksburg in the summer. Uh, funny story, I had worked at this one place for a number of summers, and so I thought the summer of 76 would be the biggest, you know, most hours I would get. And it, people may not remember now, but the bicentennial was a bit of a bust because everybody was afraid everything was going to be too crowded, so nobody came, oh, right? Oh, no! So that was a you know, good experience with what over-marketing does. Um, and then when I was in college, I was a university guide at the University of Virginia, so I was doing similar kinds of work. You could say I was in tourism work throughout mm, my mm -hmm. teen years in college. And then coming out of college, um, I went directly to work at the Smithsonian in the typing pool. And so I took the typing test at the Navy Yard, uh, and I could type fast enough to pass the typing test and qualify to be a GS4 clerk typist which is pretty much the bottom rung of federal civil service. 
Um, so you did get your civil service in there. Somewhere. I got my civil service in there <laughs> at, at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And and at the time I went to work at the Smithsonian, the way almost everybody got a job at the Smithsonian was to come in through the typing pool. So I was one of the least. Is that mostly women, I'm guessing? No, men too. Men too. Men too. The man oh. who eventually be, ended up being my boss had come in that way as well. Hmm. And I was the most underqualified member of the clerk typist pool because I only had an undergraduate degree. I did not have a PhD from Yale or Harvard in art history, and I did not speak multiple languages. So wow! Uh, so you're I was underqualified. This typing pool was this was a rocketed <laughs> typing pool. Yeah. But I luckily my first one of my first assignments was to O Plants, which is uh, the people who maintain all the Smithsonian buildings. And so I worked under the elephant at Natural History, for anyone who's visited the Natural History Museum, giving out safety shoes. So I learned a lot about building management. And then I got moved to the castle, which is where the leadership of the Smithsonian works. And I typed the Smithsonian budget that goes to Congress. And this is when, and this will make me sound like I'm 163 years old, which I'm not. But I typed a big portion of the Smithsonian budget on an IBM Selectric typewriter. Wow. And then they would take the budget up physically to Capitol Hill, where it would be reviewed by various committees and eventually passed, because the Smithsonian is that kind of a federal organization that its budget is is reviewed by Congress and then eventually passed. So what was funny about that is, even though you're supposed to be able to type and not read, of course I would read. I was just going to say, and you so, were just typing. <laughs> and so for years later, people would say, blah, 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 ask a question, and I would say, oh yeah, there are you know, 163 elephants at the research compound in blah, blah, India. And somebody would go, how do you even know that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's just in my mind. It's in my brain. Because so. you were typing and reading, and but you were right. digesting everything. Digesting. Because you That's were right. at the Smithsonian. Right. Oh, my gosh. Right. And I didn't know until I got a different job at the Smithsonian. Nobody knew the budget people. Like, they were over in the castle. And, and so I would say something like, well, let me just call somebody in the budget office and get the answer to that. And people would go... You can do that. You can call the budget office and get an answer to a question. So it was it was a it was a fortuitous placement, even though it doesn't sound very glamorous. Yeah. Uh, typing the budget. Interesting. My uh, younger sister works in um, at the state of Colorado, and she started in the budget office of the uh-huh. OIT department. And you know, she had such a interesting perspective coming in at the budget level really I'm really looking at it from the numbers and how everything comes in I mean I think there's great value in that oh there's huge and you know at a place like the Smithsonian you don't ever get a holistic view of what's happening because if you're working at natural history or I ended up at the Renwick Gallery which is a curatorial subdivision of what's now the National Museum of American Art was then the National Collection of Fine Arts you know you're in your little subdivision and if you're at the Renwick you may not have a clue what's happening at the Hirshhorn. Mm-hmm. But if you're typing the budget, you see what all the numbers are for everybody. Yeah, and so you really look at the Smithsonian as a whole right. and how all the pieces come together versus your department being the center of the universe, so to speak, right. and kind of like thinking right. that's what is the big deal. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, so what's next after already working in the Smithsonian? Well, I ended up eventually uh, being a, a temporary typist at the Renwick Gallery which is across the street from the old executive office building in the White House. So it's an off-the-mall museum, uh, which at the time I was there in the late 70s, early 1980s, was the American Crafts and Decorative Arts Museum. It still is, but at that time they did not have a permanent collection as they do today. So we did about 25 exhibitions a year. So I ended up being the permanent clerk typist there eventually, and then I moved my way up to being a 
exhibits technician and helping organize shows and install installations and and worked finally on doing the museum work that you wanted to work. be doing right and the versus... Renwick was a great place to work because uh, we had all these parties because we had all these openings because we did all these exhibitions and because there were a lot of craft collectors at that time in in Washington DC for lots of reasons I could go into we had more of a following than if you work at natural history uh, or air and space where many 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 of the people who are visiting there are coming from out of state it's a mm. once in a lifetime visit the Renwick was more like a local uh, oh, museum, even mm-hmm. though it belonged to the Smithsonian, like the Phillips Collection or the Corcoran, when the Corcoran was in business. And so we had people like Dale Chihuly and Wendell Castle and um, Maria Martinez and all sorts of interesting people having their first museum exhibitions because only the Cooper Hewitt in New York and the Renwick were doing contemporary craft exhibits at that time. So we worked with a lot of living artists. We did a lot of survey shows with living artists. We did interesting exhibitions like a George Jensen exhibition, uh, Century of Ceramics in America. I'm awesome at uh, Antiques Roadshow trivia <laughs> because you know I've handled a lot of this material yeah. and seen a lot of it, so I can spot George Jensen you know from 20 feet away. Um, and so it was a really fun place to work because there was a lot going on. There were a lot of exhibitions, and during that time. Uh, Vice President Mondale was the vice president, and his wife Joan Mondale uh, was a potter. And so she, they were the first couple to live in the, the observatory, which became the official residence for the vice president. And because of Joan's interest in art, she decided to have art uh, rotate through the vice president's house from sort of the major quadrants of the United States, you know, northern, southern, western, whatever. And so Michael Monroe, who was the curator I worked with, or I worked for, at the Renwick, would, was hanging exhibitions at the vice president's house, and Joan Mondale would drop in on a regular basis uh, because she was so interested in, in the kind of exhibitions we did and because she identified as a potter. So I think people who live in Denver don't always think about when you're working in Washington, D.C., back then, especially in the 70s and 80s, it was really, you know, local. I mean, things are happening and you're seeing things and we would go over to the White House or the Executive Office Building to mount the public displays of gifts people had gotten on international trips because if you don't put them on display, GSA gets them and then you won't have them for your presidential library. And, you know, so it's a it was a really interesting time to work at the Renwick. Wow. So did you feel like you were in your dream job at that time? Well, it was a pretty dreamy job. And it's the, the thing that's interesting about every job I've had, especially the jobs in the museum world, is you never had the same day twice and you would never get bored. So I know sometimes people say, oh my gosh, somebody's worked at the National Gallery of Art for 35 years. Yeah, but it's like they've had 35 different jobs because it yeah. depends on what's happening that year. You know, you're always doing something different. Uh, but it was a very dreamy job. Well, and that's the nature of the arts or the museum, right? Is that you're creating something new or curating something new right, all or the something, time, right? Or and, something new is changing. So you've got different donors or you have different artists or you have a different configuration in the building or you're doing a different kind of promotion. Uh, you know, there's a shop at the Renwick. We had different things happening in the shop depending on what we were showing. Uh, we were trying to bring that American crafts movement into that gift shop. And so small and large, we had changes all the time in terms of looking at what the content of the building was at that yeah. point. And so you got a first-hand view of the curator and what it was to be a museum director then, and are you still 
yes. thinking that's where you wanted to go next? Yep. Or did, yep. was that Absolutely. the next step then? Is it had it not dissuaded me in at all. Yeah. <laughs> it just kept preparing you. Yes, <laughs> yes, it did. So what was the next step from there? Well, I got married and moved to Philadelphia area and wanted very much to finish my master's degree. I don't know why, but I ended up in American Studies master's degree program at George Washington University, which required both comprehensive exams and a thesis. So I had gotten through everything with the thesis and I spent time working on my thesis. And I started doing some consulting work for the Campbell Soup Company on their corporate history and memorabilia. And at that time, the Campbell Soup Company was still owned by the Dorns family, which was the uh, family that was the legacy uh, owners of the company from its establishment uh, in the 19th century. So Campbell Soup was the first company that figured out how to sell condensed soup, which is a big deal because it cuts your transportation costs so greatly to have a smaller can of soup and let the consumer put the water in than to ship the water, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It was it's really, funny, it's such a mainstay today, you don't even think about that. That was that. an innovation So Heinz <laughs> and Campbell's were coming up with all these really interesting food innovations at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and that's the origin of the Campbell Soup Company. So the Campbell Soup Company at that point was planning to have a museum on the river in Camden, New Jersey, next to where the aquarium is now. And so you were, RCA was going to have a museum, Campbell Soup was going to have a museum, and uh, the aquarium was going to be there. Well, nobody knows what RCA is today unless they're older than X, right? <laughs> and Campbell Soup then went through a variety of changes and decided not to do this. But they had hired me in anticipation that they would want to be able to showcase their corporate history and memorabilia. So I spent um, a couple of years as a consultant to them crawling around under the canning equipment uh, in Camden, New Jersey, which is where all Campbell tomato soup was at one point in time canned, which is also hard for people to imagine now. It used to be in August that the trucks lined up from the entry into that plant in Camden, literally for 10 or 20 miles into South Jersey, because New Jersey is the garden state people, and they were raising all the tomatoes tomatoes for all the tomato soup. And then they were making it all in this plant. So I would go to the plant and crawl around under this, at that point, defunct. They weren't using that equipment anymore. Looking for the paintings that had been the illustrations for Campbell Soup ads in the 1930s and 40s. And so many of your listeners may know uh, that there was a huge group of now increasingly famous illustrators working in uh, the Brandywine River Valley and Philadelphia in Delaware who were all doing paintings and illustrations that would go into Saturday Evening Post and the major publications that were being published in Philadelphia. Yeah, that was a big deal, all those publications. That's right. You had the best ads and the best art. And so if you go back and look at those ads, you'll see these cute little kids with big bowls of Campbell soup, and those were illustrations that were derived from paintings. And so I found a number of these paintings. They had them restored. Um, also pulled together memorabilia because there's been Campbell Soup kids for generations. They've looked different at different generations. Uh, We had all sorts of store advertising. And eventually what I did was um, redesign the lobby for the Campbell Soup Company so they would feature all of this corporate history memorabilia and some of these paintings Ah, because they had never really put their own history on display in the building. So not a standalone museum, but yet how do you take the library and do it? So uh, I did that and then I worked in the Trecho business uh, in Pensaca, New Jersey, building exhibits for museums that didn't have exhibit staff. So essentially 90% of the business was Trecho where we were building 
20 footers or we built you know the sony exhibits for las vegas for the um, nab shows a lot of really big corporate work and then also did the design development and building of exhibits for museums so so how do you get a job like that i mean was, was there an organization that you worked through or did you start your own company no in fact i don't even remember now i just saw the ad and applied for it probably in a, in a museum publication at that time oh. and because i'd already been doing consulting with campbell soup i just moved over and started doing that and that was interesting because i would do things like the you know criminal justice hall of fame in columbia south carolina where part of the installation crew were people who had been convicted of first-degree murder. Yikes. So we could do a whole podcast just yeah, about that. Yeah, I think so. so. Okay. So, you know, you really, you know, you would go off on the road with union carpenters from New Jersey and then just, like, you know, do stuff. I did all the exhibits for Far Hills, New Jersey for Golf House and worked on the Young Combs Interpretive Center in uh, Fargo-Moorhead, Minnesota, North Dakota. So, um lots of different stories I could go on for hours about mm-hmm. that and then from there I went to be the head of exhibits for the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia and that's what really got me into science museums and then from there I was recruited uh, well actually I applied but was also recruited to go be the head of exhibits and eventually ended up being the chief operating officer for the Maryland Science Center at the Inner Harbor in Baltimore and then I was recruited to Denver to run what was then the Denver Museum of Natural History in 1995 and that's how I ended up in Denver. Wow so what's give us the time frame there so you had been kind of how long in each of those roles? Uh, let's see One I two was years, maybe? no no I was uh, three years at the Academy of Natural Sciences five years in Baltimore and then nine years as CEO here and during my time here at the museum we changed the name to Nature and Science and we mm-hmm. built the parking garage and we built on the west side uh, Laprino family atrium and and change the sort of the look of the west side of the building. So back to your point about it's never the same. It's always changing. It's always changing. It's funny because you, when you think of museums, I think right <laughs> history and oh that stuff doesn't change. But right. yet you talk about the dyna- it's so dynamic. It's and very fluid. dynamic. Wow. It's very dynamic. Very exciting. Yeah, and museums are unusual as a class of places you could work because they are in so many businesses and the buildings are usually functioning close to 24 hours a day, right? So at a place like the Museum of Nature and Science or at one of the Smithsonian Museums, you might have kids sleeping over, you might have a lot of catered experiences or parties, you might have night classes, you've got people doing research 24 hours a day. So it's it's a really living environment with a lot of things going on. And people don't always think about all of those facets because their experience is derived by sort of the piece of the iceberg they're touching. Yeah. And the piece of the iceberg they're seeing is the small piece, right? Like any other iceberg, the biggest piece is below the water. Yeah, and that's the piece that you see. That's the, yeah. So talk about your, kind of your leadership experience then. So you've mentioned that, you know, you you started in the typing pool, but then you got involved with right. ex, uh, exhibits and things like that. So talk about the leadership side of it and, I mean, how how did you gain all of those experiences? Right. And the well, business side. Well, obviously, that budget office was helpful. Right, right, right. Well, sad to say, you know, my, I learned on the job. So I had staff that probably would give you a different perspective <laughs> on that mm-hmm. leadership piece. You know, I it, very early on, I ended up with, um, when we were at the Renwick, we didn't, there were only about six of us that were full-time at the Renwick. So when we were putting up an exhibit or taking an exhibit down, people would show up from other Smithsonian museums 
to work with us on that. So we might have curators coming from the museum that had developed the Century of Ceramics in America exhibit, and they're doing condition reporting and helping us pack or unpack pieces. We would have our own registrar, and she might bring people from other museums. The installation crew was headquartered at what was then the National Collection of Fine Arts. One time we borrowed the painters from the Hirshhorn. Uh, you know, and so you, I observed how informally things got done. When you don't have positional power and you need to make things happen, how does that happen? You know, are you trading favors? Are you taking people to lunch? I mean, what? how do you do that? And then when I was at the academy, uh, I had a staff of anywhere from, I don't know, five to 12 people, depending on what we were working for. Some of them would have been part-time. We did all the graphic design. Um, we bought the first computers to do desktop publishing for the annual report and things like that. We were developing exhibitions. We were maintaining exhibitions. Um, and so it, it, a lot of it was management of tasks and probably high-level project management. Um, but I was never shy about speaking truth to power. And so I would say that's my greatest strength and others would say that's my greatest weakness. Uh, that if I was sitting in a staff meeting with my boss and I thought something was going the wrong way, I never felt hesitant to say, wow, why are we doing this? Or why are we doing that? Or why aren't we doing this? Um, and I think, you know, when you do raise your hand a lot, you get picked on a lot mm -hmm. and you get picked mm -hmm. a lot, right? Yeah. And so people would, you know, I would get invited to meetings that other people at my level maybe wouldn't be invited to because I guess they figured eventually if we invite Raylene, maybe we'll stop her from, you know, nibbling away at this on the edges. <laughs> we don't have to explain it to her later if she's right, part of right. the discussion. Right, explain it to her later <laughs> or she won't be outside the tent throwing rocks because she's inside the tent. Um, and so just learning on the job, a lot of it. And watching what worked for others and not. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the time I got to Baltimore in that role, Fred Harmon was my coach. Fred wrote, uh, has written three books on values-based management, and he was indispensable as a coach to me throughout my career from the time I was at Maryland, I would say through today. There is probably not a week that goes by that I don't do something that Fred taught me how to do mm. or suggested I do. Mm -hmm. And so and I... And how did you find Fred? Fred found me. So okay. um, this was, this is actually funny. My very first day at the Maryland Science Center, we met across the street at the Harper Court Hotel uh, for an all-day strategic planning meeting. And Fred was the facilitator. Ah. And so he um, came up to, after, that was the initial meeting, months and months later, maybe even years later, he, we kept working together on this strategic plan, and then at some point, he took me out to lunch and said, you've got a lot of potential, but, you know, basically you need help. He said it much, <laughs> no, much nicer than I just said it. And so I paid him personally to be my professional coach. Um, I didn't want that done through the organization I worked for because I wanted to own the relationship, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, you trusted his judgment? I mean, I someone might take judgment. it, you know, that might not always go well to, right. you know, have someone give you that kind of Right. No, feedback. I trusted his judgment, and mm -hmm. I think it, part of the reason he was so valuable to me is he had met the board of the Maryland Science Center. He knew the CEO. He had helped us with strategic planning. And so I think if I have a bias towards coaching, it's that someone needs to understand your business environment. Now, if you need a personal coach, that's a different deal. If you need a fitness coach, that's a different deal. But from my perspective, what was really valuable about that relationship is not only did Fred bring a wealth of experience 
and, and help me share in his experience, but he understood the platform on which I had to function. Oh. And so he could give me even better, or when I called him and said I have an issue with X, he could understand what that looked like without me having to spend three hours describing all the players yeah. and who they were and what they did and, you know, that... The dynamics the dynamics and the of relationships the group and, and all, yeah. Yeah, the financial standing of the organization, mm -hmm. but, you know, they could go on forever, so... Yeah. Yeah. Wow, so he was a, a key part of that. A key part of that. Well, that's so helpful that you find people like that, right? It is, it is. And I think it's really important, you know, people talk a lot about mentors and... I've certainly had mentors in my career, although not formal mentors like people sometimes talk about it now. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to look for that, you know, and you have to challenge yourself. And so, you know, at some point, probably I think when I was the director of exhibits at the Academy, I started reading the Wall Street Journal every day. You know, if you're going to go up the ladder, you've got to figure out what the people at the next step on the ladder are thinking about or are talking about. Um, I think it is important, and this may sound superficial, but for people to pay attention to what they're wearing. And, you know, if you're dressing like the job you want to have, you still have a little more of an advantage, and you begin to create a different image for yourself in the eyes of those people that are thinking about who they might promote. Yeah, because visually they're like, oh, well, she looks the part. <laughs> right. That's right. So, but can she do the part? Right. And so right. then that starts to happen right. more naturally. Right. So. And, and maybe I'm most acutely aware of that because I came up through the exhibit side. So you literally, even back when people didn't wear jeans to work, were wearing jeans and a sweatshirt because you were going to be putting up drywall all day long. Well, that's not the outfit you would wear to the staff meeting, right? Yeah. So, so there you, you, you could that. purposefully see the difference between... Right. Uh, right what wardrobe worked for what you were right. doing for the day. <laughs> or not letting people pigeonhole you in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So, yeah. So any, any setbacks along this journey so far? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, it, it, certainly there are times when you enjoy the work more than others just because you like the content better or you're mm -hmm. with a more fun team. But I did not have, like, a crisis at any point along the way where I went, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I don't want to work in museums. Or... Um, I don't like the path I'm on. Yeah. So I enjoyed the path I was on. Or what about, oh, I didn't get that job I wanted or that role or that promotion. Did you have experience any of that? Absolutely. Especially when I first moved to Philadelphia, I applied for a lot of jobs. And uh, I'll never forget, I was being, I was interviewed like two or three times to be the executive director, I think it was the Swedish American Heritage Museum or something. And they finally called me up and said, you know, we would love to hire you, but you don't have any immigrant experience in your family, right? My family had all been in Virginia since like uh, 1680 or 17. <laughs> so you were part of the history. I was part of the history. I didn't have the Ellis Island piece of the history. Yeah. And so that was the first time I ever didn't get a job where I was like, huh, that's an, in I mean, wow, out of left field. I didn't yeah. see that one coming. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there were certainly jobs I didn't get, but more frequently especially when I started wanting to be a museum director and the interviews I went on before I ended up here in Denver, I, I knew they weren't the right job, right? You, mm. you get, if you really know what you yourself and you know what you're good at and you know what you're looking for, you can pretty quickly, when you're in an interview process, say, ooh, these, these are probably not my people or this is not my work or this may not be the city I want to live in. And, and so I think that made me... Um, more confident about being clear about what I wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, not so much that I was, oh, I didn't get that job, but, oh, I didn't want that job. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you didn't take it personal. You really looked no. at the objective markers, so to speak, as right. to, I didn't want that part. This didn't fit either. They didn't want this part of me, right. so it that's wasn't right. the right fit. Wow, that's very um, that's very objective. It's easy to get sucked into the other part, which is, well, why wouldn't they want me, right? right. And right. That's, oh, and it's that's, really hard because in the museum field, people who serve on museum boards, who are usually the ones interviewing people that are going to be their CEO, are lovely people who have a great interest in the mission of the organization. I mean, you know, you're never going to have a bad time probably meeting a bunch of people who love museums. Yeah. I and, mean, where's the downside? Yeah. That, right. So you do have to be careful not to get sucked into it. Or I did have to be careful not to get sucked into it. But every every job teaches you a lesson and you go, okay, I love this part of it. I didn't love that part of it. Mm-hmm. How do I get more of the part I love and less of the part I didn't love? Yeah, it's very introspective, it sounds like. So how did you get from, now, museum director to leadership transition and strategy coach? Right. So... cut consultant, sorry. I had, coach consultant, I guess. I had told the search committee that hired me at the then Denver Museum of Natural History that I would not stay in the job for 10 years. And I don't think they believed me, but I told them that even when they were interviewing me because they were hiring me to be a change agent. And I firmly believe that after eight to ten years, people are thoroughly sick of a change agent mm. and are ready for something different. And if you haven't made the change in eight to ten years, you weren't the right hire yeah. and probably yeah. should move on. So when I'd been at the museum for almost nine years, I talked to the then board chair, my former board chair, and my next board chair and said, this has been great. Here's the list of things you hired me to do. They're all done except for like there's a half of this one and a piece of this one and that'll be done in short order and gave them the option of of selecting my departure date and they picked the furthest out date I'd given them as an option. Uh, During the time I was at the museum, we had lost two of my grandparents, both of my parents, my husband's father, and adopted two children. So- Wow, big life changes. Big life changes. And so when people say to me, why didn't you want to be at the museum anymore? I, I loved being at the museum. The job was my dream job. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I think I contributed a lot. But I was very conscious of the fact that I needed to take some time and, you know, both kind of marinate in all of these life changes and do some other things to make those life changes more functional. So I took off about uh, 18 months, and which I call my self-funded sabbatical. <laughs> uh, as you know, because we started with my early teen years, it was the first time in my life I had really ever been unemployed and did not know what was coming next. You know, wow. I'd always had a North Star before, yeah. and I had no North Star. Well, and how did that feel? That's got to feel so weird for you. It felt weird, but it also felt good. So it took, I was planning only to take off a year, and 18 months in, my husband's like, well, gee, are you thinking about yeah. going back to work one day? Have you looked at the time Have yet? Have you looked at the time <laughs> yet? I went, gee, wow, time-wise. But we we traveled with our kids who were very young then. I raised some money for Steck School, where both my kids were going to elementary school. Um, you know, we enjoyed time in the mountains. I, my sister and I had a lot of things to deal with that were the results of, you know, we kind of closed the checkbook from my grandmother's estate the day we opened the checkbook for my mother's estate. We had furniture mm-hmm. to kind of sort through and, and a variety of th- the house to kind of gotten in order. We wanted to redo our kitchen. You know, we had some projects that I just couldn't take on while I was still at the museum. So I did all of that. And at the same time, uh, Fred was still advising me as my coach and Fred said something very thoughtful, as he always does, about me and said, Wow, Raylene, you have a great resume and you seem to have absolutely no interest in finding a job. Uh, 
which was true. Both were both statements were he true. He seems very observant. <laughs> very observant, very observant about me especially. And so he was the one who said, wow, you always talk about how much you enjoyed being an exhibits consultant when I worked in that trade show house. Um, and I loved it because you had a different stack of projects every year. You never had the same day twice. You met really interesting people. You traveled all over the country installing these crazy exhibitions in different places and uh, and doing work that people really valued because, you know, they don't they had no way to build these exhibits without someone helping them. And um, and so, you know, I met everybody from the nuns at Mother Seton Shrine to the golfers at Golf House. I'm not Catholic and I don't play golf, but fascinating. So Fred said, you know, I'm going to be retiring. At that point, he was in his 70s. And why don't you just take over the strategic planning tools we've been using together and use those and start a strategic planning practice? And so we even started talking about doing a few projects together, which never really came to fruition. So I thought, mm, that's interesting. So I started doing that. And then Rick King, who owned at that time Kittleman uh, and Associates out of Chicago, kept calling me to go on searches. And I went out on a for for him and for another national search firm to on a couple of searches. And that just confirmed for me that I really did not want to move again or uh, run another museum at that point in time. And so it really helped solidify the fact we weren't going to move. So Rick kept calling me and I kept saying, not going to move, not going to move, staying in Denver. So I was in Washington, D.C. to serve on a National Science Foundation panel. And Rick was in D.C. doing a search. And we had dinner together. And he said, well, then come work for me. And I said, no, I don't want to do that either because I've got this strategic planning thing going. So we agreed then that I would do some searches with Kittleman and uh, loved doing that kind of work. And so I've been doing that for now, low these many years. And you wouldn't have to have gone to Chicago to do that, right? You could no, stay in Denver? Did it here. He, mm-hmm. he was really interested in having me be in Denver and do more work in the Western oh, United States. Oh, because he had Chicago He had Chicago, covered, and we have an office oh. now in Philadelphia. So... Uh, it made sense that way. And so I've been able to blend doing, you know, sort of, I think, in a contemporary model, we're all working in more of a bunch of grapes model, right, where we each have different things we're doing. So I have different things I'm doing. Most of the work I'm doing with Kittleman, which is the leadership transition work. Sometimes I'm doing work uh, out of my own company on strategy or on uh, coaching or board development work. And it's been a great arrangement. And it allows me to do what's always been the hallmark of my career, which is never have the same day twice, and always be doing something different, meeting new people, learning new things, picking up new skills, and uh, so it's great. Wow. Well, and and you're sharing all that, you know. Yeah, so right. you're sharing it with your clients, and right. I mean, it's that's right. That's I see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, and it's very interesting because you learn things from one search and the follow-up work I talked about. You know, the follow-up work makes me a better search consultant because I go, oh, wow, that communication thing that we thought was going to be so effective was effective or wasn't effective or could have yeah. been more effective. And then you take that with you on the next engagement. Yeah. And so it all it all. So it's like you're always kind of learning forward. and Learning forward, that's we, right. This is what we're doing now. We think this is going to then take the next whatever right. worked and keep making it better and right. keep making it better. Right. Wow, that's right. great. Well, it's funny. When I asked you the question about setbacks, you're like, no, no setbacks, but... Um, I love that because that's a philosophy in a way, right? right? You don't look at, oh, that was a setback or that was a failure. You just, I learned from that or I right. figured out that wasn't the right, right. fit. And right. that's not how everybody's mind works, by no, the way. No, and some people would think my <laughs> approach is fairly delusional. And, I mean, but it still, 
that's the way. Well, I want what you're drinking. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, I'm if a, it's coffee or whatever. whatever. I'm a lifelong learner. And mm-hmm. so for me, those are all learning experiences. And I really am in just amazingly curious. And so, it, you know, almost every day somebody calls me up and tells me something that's going on in an organization, either around strategy or failure strategy or leadership transition or how an outgoing CEO is acting. And, you know, there's probably not a day that I don't sit here and go, wow, I'm, I'm kind of baffled by that. Tell me more. I mean, I've kind of never heard that story before quite that way. And mm-hmm. so you learn a lot about how things happen and why things happen and how people are behaving. That, you know, one of the things in this job you learn is not everybody behaves like I behave, right? Oh, you know, yeah. and, and, and I think, Which is a surprise sometimes, right? Which is a surprise like, why sometimes. Why am I surprised by that? I shouldn't be, but I am. <laughs> but I am. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I, and I, I guess I would always like to be surprised because mm-hmm. that's part of that learning experience. Wow, so would you say dream job now? Yeah. I don't know that I've ever had a bad job in my life. Mm-hmm. I've had some jobs that were a better fit for me than others, and I was always happier once I became someone at sort of the COO, CEO level because the strategy is so important to me. And it is harder often to influence strategy. <coughs> Excuse me. It's often hard to influence strategy when you're lower in an organization. Yeah. Well, because you don't understand even how you got to that initial decision point or, yeah. Right. And it's just not, yeah. I mean, most organ and this is not a fault of anybody's, there's, it's just hard to have complete transparency throughout an organization. And I think people try much harder to do that today than was the management style when I first started working. But you still don't have all the facts because you can't always be in all the rooms where no, it's happening. No, you can't. You can't. But I, I think a key part was, you know, you started in that budget office. Um, you know, I mentioned my sister in the budget office, but I've also interviewed some other, and I have some friends who are obviously in the accounting world. Right. And then that's how they learn the business is through the accounting, right. through the numbers. Right. So then they get all the pieces together, and then they kind of, right. that's the foundation, and they move forward. So right, it and it's like, interesting. I mean, I still do look spend a lot of time looking at the budgets and audited financials for any of my clients, whether it's strategy or, or whatever. Um, yeah, because you got to see what's going on. That's where I have see to see what's, what's going, going on. on. And, and it's interesting that someone who was an undergraduate art history major is often able to spot a trend that someone else is missing. And, you know, and I think that's because I'm not really into the accounting. I'm into the pattern recognition, mm. right? That I don't care if the number in the box is three or 12. I care that the numbers in the boxes are getting smaller and smaller or that they're getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Right? Or what is it about, what, what <clears throat> should you know about that number or that industry? Right. Or, that's yeah. right, that's right, wow. that's right. Why is that staff number getting so much larger, so much faster? Or yeah. why is it getting so much smaller, so much faster? Mm-hmm. Well, I have just a little more questions for you, but we do have to wrap up at some point. So right. um, looking back, what would you say is a characteristic that served you best over your career? I am a wicked hard worker. And I think people um, need to cultivate, um, or I had cultivated, or, or because of the way I was raised, it was cultivated in me, uh, a desire to be productive and to get things done and to make a list and to scratch everything off of it at the end of the day. And And I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact that showing up and really doing the work is what makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And there's something, uh, and it's so intrinsic, right, that 
about being productive. I mean, human beings want to be producing, contributing, and uh, so that's a big part of who you are. And it sounds like even at the age of 13, you were putting up displays, taking them down, but that didn't stop when you got to be probably museum director or or any of those other. You were always about... Right. I mean, you might have been about something different, Mm -hmm. but you were about, you know, leaving a place better than you found it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very proud of the fact that at Nature and Science, they have a parking garage. And I know that's not a very sexy thing, but the first annual report to talk about a parking problem at that museum was published in 1956. 1956? You're kidding. So the parking problem had been talked about for generations, we could say. And so finally getting to make some progress on that issue was hugely satisfying. Uh, It was not easy, but it was hugely satisfying. And so I think sometimes people don't see the the nobility or the benefit or the reward of working on things that are decidedly unglamorous. Mm, Unglamorous and hard. And hard. And tried before, but maybe expensive and, you know, consuming all those, all those. Did you ever get a PhD? I mean, it's my understanding that in, you know, kind of the art history world, my niece is actually going to, um, Barnard and to get our art history major. And, um, you know, she's got this perception of you got to have a master's, you got to have a PhD. So did you ever get your PhD? No. So while I was working at the Renwick Gallery, I was living in Foggy Bottom, and I started the master's degree program at George Washington University in American Studies. And the faculty there tried to talk me into getting a museum studies degree, and I said, no, I'm already working in a museum and probably, no offense meant, have a better job than I would get with this degree. So I want to do an academic degree, so I did American Studies. And it was very hard because I was working full-time and I'm going to school virtually full-time and we were converting the building I lived in into a condominium. I mean, there was a lot going on. Yeah. But, um, and then when I moved to New Jersey, when I got married, I finished my thesis, which was, you know, really a hard slog to get that done. And several people said to me at the time, you need to get the master's degree because at some point, someone will be competing with you for a job that has a PhD and you will need to have at least that master's degree. So sure enough, when I was one of two finalists for the job here in Denver to be the CEO at what was the Natural History, the competition that I had uh, had a PhD. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I had the master's degree, even though it was in American studies, had nothing to do with the natural sciences, at least gave me those credentials. But, it's, but what's interesting about the story is what it's, how it's influenced me now and, and my commitment to skills-based employment, I work hard to have search committees remove any credentials that would keep people from being able to move into jobs. Because you really have to be very privileged to get a PhD. You know, you have to have a lot of time and a lot of money to be able to get a PhD, or maybe even a master's degree, or maybe even a college degree. And so if someone's got the skills to do the job, let's interview them and not get hung up on where people got an undergraduate degree or if they've got a master's degree or if they've got an MBA or if they've got 10 years of fundraising experience, let's just deconstruct the jobs and look at them from a skills perspective. What's really needed. What's really Mm -hmm. needed and what's going to make the difference because that's the gift that the board at the museum here gave me. They hired a 38-year-old woman who had never been a CEO to run what at that time was probably a $30 million a year organization. And I know people thought they were nuts, but if you really looked at my career experience, I'd had the right experience to do the job, even if on paper I looked like a very unconventional choice. 
So I want to play that forward to the greatest degree possible. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think people who are in transition many times might be thinking, oh, maybe I need more education. Right. I need a certification. Right. Or if you're feeling stuck, maybe sometimes education is a way to get out of feeling stuck, right? Maybe right. you have a job, but you're like, you know, I'm just... No, I'm not sure where I want to go next. Sometimes right. education can be that next right. step. So, right. Yeah, and I would say education can be a valuable, mm-hmm. but you should know where you want to go before you invest in education. Oh, yeah, good point. Because you're right. Because I think you're right. If you're feeling lost and you go get, you know, an MBA because you're feeling lost, the MBA in and of itself is not going to help you become centered on what you want to do next. It might help, but it might not help. Yeah, because there might be something in that MBA that really sparks you. or That's right. Or there may not be anything in that yeah. MBA that sparks yeah. you. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that part because I think, you know, again, having that education piece, but, you know, you also were in a, a path of needing master's, Ph.D., or at least that's the presumption. Certainly the norm at the time was, I mean, I was the first generation of, uh, Ellen Futter was the first woman in America to run a, major natural history museum and she's still at the American Museum of Natural History and in fact she'd been the president of Barnard College. Uh, I followed her by a few months in Denver and it's right when we started to see a change in museum leadership from being the chief curator in charge to hiring somebody with qualities to be a CEO. And so prior to me almost everyone who ran a natural history museum anywhere in the world had a PhD or even postdoc in some field within the natural sciences. So it was a radical change within the field that just aligned with my career trajectory, so. Yeah, well, it's funny, what just occurred for me was when we first met seven or eight years ago, I was interviewing for a nonprofit Uh executive director or CEO position, and I remember at the time we had the conversation about nonprofits hiring more business skill sets versus the traditional kind of come up through the organization or more mission-minded, but how do you run the business of being a nonprofit? Right, right, right. And how do you balance that? And it sounds like you were living that in the cusp of that, and then now you're on the other side of that recruiting and making sure that the organizations really define their strategy, what they're looking for, and then what's the right candidate after that. Absolutely. Wow. You've come... It's just a big circle. It's a big circle. <laughs> it is a big the circle of life. Yes, it is a big circle. Well, Renee, thank you so much for sharing your story. You never thank know you. who needed to hear this today and who is, you know, thinking about their career or what they're doing and um, and you know, they're gonna be moved, touched, and inspired by your stories. So I hope so. Thank you. Is there anything else that I haven't covered that you might want to share? I don't think so. We've kind of touched on so many pieces. We have touched and on a lot. Well, thank you again, and I'm so glad that our paths reconnected at this time, and I look forward to see where we might go from here. So, Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. And listeners, if you enjoyed today's interview, please subscribe on, by clicking on the button to, uh, below so that you can receive alerts on new interviews that come out. If you have any questions for me or for Raylene, please post those on my website, lifestorycurator.com. And I'll make sure to get you either in touch with Raylene or get the answer. And if you've got questions for future podcasts, uh, please let me know. Take care and have a great day.